So our theme in Vacation Bible School uh, this year is the Kingdom of God. And we uh, owe a great debt of thanks to David. Uh, owe a great debt of thanks to a lot of folks who've done a lot of the preliminary work that makes this a reality. You can look around and see that uh, this doesn't just happen by itself. And I, I'm impressed with uh, how much effort has gone into this and how much so many have done. And thank you. You're a big part of this. Uh, Vacation Bible School is not a success without you and uh, your decision that you've made. And uh, not only to be here yourself, but a lot of you have uh, brought not only brought children, maybe your children, maybe somebody else's children, but you've invited others. And maybe you're here visiting with us for the first time, and we're grateful for that. We hope that the time that we spend together, uh, by the way, I don't have the master schedule, and I'm trying to be from the school if I, I teach till I'm done. So we're going to be done before they're done, so you can feel free to make your way around and, and look at uh, various things that are going on, and the kids will be back here at some point. We would welcome that. Um, but we're talking tonight about divine kingship. Uh, and if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, we're going to get there eventually. But kind of a, an interesting background to kings is when we first began to see them mentioned in the Bible. Uh, if uh, Unless somebody knows, when, do you know when the first time a king is mentioned in the Bible? What book would you think it would be? Yeah, you got a pretty good guess with that. Genesis do you know where in Genesis? Do you remember a story in Genesis chapter 14 that involves four kings who went against five kings in Genesis chapter 14? About verse 12, I suppose it would be. And you had the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah on one side and you had all these different kingdoms that were fighting with one another. And it's the first time that individual kings are named. And not only that, but the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is the city that we'll read about later that's so wicked, their leadership flee in the battle, and as they run out, there are some tar pits. Now, I've been to Israel three times. I don't know where the tar pits uh, uh, were. They're not there now, so far as I know. But they died. They, they were stuck in those pits. And an interesting thing happens in Genesis chapter 14. In the same chapter where, of course, Abraham is going to take his little army and he's going to liberate all the folks that are captured along with the folks of the king of Sodom and Gomorrah that lose to those five kings. And on his way, after having won, Abraham is going to run into a guy, a guy that is so obscure we know very nothing about his personal life. He's only mentioned in three books of the Bible. Genesis 14, in fact, just a few chapters. Psalm 110 and then in the book of Hebrews, from Hebrews 5 to Hebrews 7. Anybody know who that was? Melchizedek. Now, when we think about Melchizedek, in what you, I know in your vast knowledge of Melchizedek, what do we know about him? Okay, you just stole my thunder, Kevin. Come on. All right. He's the king of Salem. But that's not how we usually make reference to him, is it? He's the, he's the priest. And what is it about his priest? Why does the psalmist talk about him? And why does, in fact, it's the, it's at the center of the story of Abraham and Melchizedek. Because he pays tribute to Melchizedek as priest. And the lesser pays tribute to the greater. He is a superior because, and, and the Hebrews writer is going to make the point that out of, uh, out of Abraham's loins is going to come Levi, the Levitical priesthood. He's going to be of the tribe of Levi. And that's the tribe under the law of Moses. But Melchizedek uh, is representative of 
something greater than that. He's a priest that doesn't have anybody before him or anybody after him. But as Kevin said, he is also introduced to us as the king of Salem. The part of him we don't talk about as much. By the way, king of Salem, that's Jerusalem. This is before Jerusalem was even on the map. This is the the same area of the world where Abraham's descendants are going to ultimately come back and they're going to inhabit that land. This is the same place. And so this is foreshadowing a lot about the king that we're looking at tonight. I'm, I'm a... I'm a nerd, I guess, generally, but I'm a history nerd, and I love to, to look at some of these facts that come out uh, about with regard to various subjects. And when it comes to the kings, there's a lot of different ways to look at the superlatives, the, the best and the worst of. And the king who reigned for the longest was King Louis Fourteenth. He reigned longer than even Queen Elizabeth has reigned. Now, she lives a little bit longer. She's going to pass him. But at, up to this point, 72 years. He was appointed king at the age of four, and he died at the age of 76 in 1719. And then, about a century later, another King Louis held a distinction for how long he sat on the throne. King Louis the 19th. He lasted 20 minutes before he had to abdicate in 1830. Now, he shares that distinction with another king who met a more violent end in 1908, King Louis Philippe of Portugal, and we can't really formally call him that, he and his dad were a part of an assassination coup and they were killed and he outlived his dad by 20 minutes. So technically he was king for 20 minutes. But you know, however short or how long a king will reign, kings come and they go. However you measure dynasties and and monastic reigns, they're only here for a little bit of time. You know, we, we could talk about this from a different angle. Let's talk about the world today. Anybody know who the richest king, what nation the richest king is from? You got a, you got about a one in two hundred shot. Close. The Sultan of Brunei is the second most wealthy king. Twenty eight billion dollars, a paltry sum compared to number one. Thailand. She gets the gold star. Lynn, you're the, 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 the star student for tonight. Forty three billion dollars. He's number one in the world. His holdings in land holdings are very choice in uh, Southeast Asia, and so he holds that distinction. You know who the poorest king is? Poor fella. King Lesotho with a paltry $1.2 million. I don't know how he's going to get his next meal. Now, kings are from across the, the, the spectrum, aren't they? As far as their wealth, but what about their power? You know, kings have existed from Genesis 14 until today. We don't have a king in in America. There was one fraud in San Francisco in the 19th century that called himself the king of America. And everybody kind of winked and nodded and laughed. And he was a harmless little fraud out there. But we don't have a king. But there are kings here and there through history that have reigned. And you think about ranking those that were the most powerful, the greatest kings. And there are names that would come to your mind of the great kings. Alexander the Great would be one the Bible even mentions in the book of Daniel, alludes to him very clearly in Daniel's vision. And then you'd have Cyrus the Great, which the Bible also talks about. But you also have some that we know in history, like Charlemagne and Peter the Great, or Attila the Hun, or Genghis Khan. Men who have been absolute in their power, ruthless in the way that they've wielded it. When you think about uh, uh, Cyrus the Great, his kingdom was a vast kingdom 
that covered most of the world from Greece to India. And Genghis Khan, he reigned from Afghanistan to northern China. And they scared, they, Attila the Hun scared the, the known world so greatly that he reorganized where people lived on the earth to stay away from him. They came and they went. We get to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11 through 13. There's the dedication of the temple. And there you have Solomon as he is in front of uh, the people and he's dedicating the temple. He says something. If you'll turn over to 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 11. He says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and in the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. And in your hand is power and might, and it is in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and we praise your glorious name. Now, just three quick important truths before we get to our text. What we have here stated for us with this king that we're talking about is that his rule is exclusive. What you'll find as you look at those three verses is that it is stated over and over again. It's yours and you. There's no God like you. And his reign, his kingship is exhaustive. When you pull out all the words that are used to describe him, he's majestic, he's glorious, his power is without end. I want you to keep that in mind as we get to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. And then third, his rule is exalted. He is head over all. He is the ruler of all. It's like one of the devotional songs we sing, there's no God like Jehovah. That's the God that we're looking at tonight. And I want to see it. In just one verse, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. So let's turn over there. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. Now we're picking up in the middle of the story. Because what happens is, in fact, as the background of this, in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44, this is when Daniel is interpreting a dream. What's the occasion for this? What, what brings this about? The background of Daniel 2.44. Whose dream is it? Nebuchadnezzar's. Easy for you to say. All right, Nebuchadnezzar. And what's the problem? Okay, the problem is I don't know what that bell is. Is there going to be a bunch of those? Okay. Well, there's no kids in here, so we'll keep going. So say it again. There's nobody to interpret the dream. Right, there's all these guys, that's, their, that's what they get paid for, that they're supposed to interpret the dreams, and they can't do it. Nebuchadnezzar's mad. He's ready to kill them all. And then... Word comes out about Daniel. And so Daniel comes into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's presence. And he has this great figure. We don't have time to look at that. But I encourage you to look earlier in the chapter. And this figure... Now, what Nebuchadnezzar wants is not just the interpretation of the dream. He wants somebody, if they really do know, if they really have this divine connection, to come in and tell him the dream and give its interpretation. That's how you can know if they're, they're telling the truth or if they're frauds. And so Daniel comes into his presence, and we'll look at verse 28 in just a moment, but he gives him the dream that he had, this incredible figure that he sees, made of four different materials, and then he gives the interpretation of it. And this is kind of the climax of this this scene in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44, where it says, this is Daniel speaking, In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. It shall not be left to other people, but it will crush and break into pieces all these kingdoms, but it shall itself last forever. 
just very briefly, I want us to think about five things that come from that. I want you to think about Daniel, the guy who is sharing Daniel 2.44. He is an exile among all the Jews who have been taken out of their land. Their land is the land of Judah. And because of the punishment for their sin, they're all the way up in Babylon, over a thousand miles away. And there they are, they're there for three and a half generations as punishment for their sin. And Jeremiah has talked about it and said, this is coming. Now they're there. Daniel is going to see the beginning of it and he's going to see the end of it because at the end of the book of Daniel, he says, hey, your prophet Jeremiah said after 70 years, we can go back home. And that Cyrus the Great that we talked about a moment ago, he says, you can go back. And so they go back and they repopulate their land. But now Daniel is seeing this dream and this vision, he's going to see some other greater ones like we're going to see in Daniel chapter 7. And this great vision does not have to do with what's happening at the time. If you look at verse 45 of Daniel 2, it has to do with the future. Now, the what he sees is these four kingdoms. That's what that figure represents. The first kingdom is Babylon. It's Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But it's going to give way to the Medo-Persians. That's who Cyrus the Great is going to be a part of. And then the Medo-Persians are going to be conquered by the Greeks. That's Alexander the Great. And then the Roman Empire is going to follow that. And they're going to rule all the earth. And it's during the days of those kings that this is going to take place. All right, so with that lengthy background, let's look at those five points very briefly. Number one, this kingdom is divine. That's the first thing that we notice as we come to Daniel 2 and verse 44. The God of heaven is going to set it up. Now, earlier in the chapter, uh, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in verse 28, he says, there is a God in heaven. So what Daniel's saying is, there's a God. Not like all these other guys are trying to claim. And he's the one that gives me the power to know what it is that you say. And this God in heaven is going to demonstrate that he is God. And that's how Daniel, but Daniel interpreting that dream, he demonstrates, he proves that there's a God. Have any of you ever heard of Otis Gatewood? This is, he's before my time, but I, um, I heard references to him. Otis Gatewood was an interesting guy. He did a lot of his work out in the West, but he went overseas. That's what he's really known to our brotherhood for. Otis Gatewood was one of the first missionaries after World War II. And he was one of the first to go behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, most of you are familiar with the Iron Curtain. Some of you may be a little bit too young for that. The former Soviet Union was referred to in that way. He wrote a Christian evidence book entitled, There's a God in Heaven. And he translated it in Russian. When he first wrote it, that's who he wrote it for. And in writing it, in translating it in Russian, he said he did so because the communist leaders were telling their people that there is no God in heaven. It was then translated not only into Russian, but it was translated into a lot of other languages where communist rule, godless communist rule uh, was occurring. In order to get that message, this evidence, based on this idea from Daniel, there's a God in heaven, you can know it and I will prove it. And with these proofs, it will help to build your faith. And he said, but I also wrote it, and this was over 60 years ago when he wrote it, so that it could be used if possible in our nation maybe on our college campuses, where at that time 80% taught a godless world. The interesting thing is, is that when Daniel 
gives the dream to Nebuchadnezzar and interprets it for him. What's the response from Nebuchadnezzar? Anybody know? How does he feel about it? What is his spiritual response? He fell on his face. He acknowledges this is from God. You ever wonder what happened to him spiritually? You think about Nebuchadnezzar is known profanely outside the Bible. There's, there's archaeological history, and that's always a neat thing to have that corroborating evidence. But you ever thought about his faith? What does the Bible tell us about that? Now, he's not there yet because in Daniel chapter 3, you remember that encounter with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He's still not a righteous man. And in fact, in Daniel chapter 4, um, at the beginning of that chapter, he has some idea of the greatness of God, but Daniel the prophet sees a, a prophecy with regard to Nebuchadnezzar. It was that because of his pride, he was going to go down all fours for a season, for a time, like a wild animal. Now, there was a day in which Nebuchadnezzar was looking at all over all of his vast kingdom. Remember, he's the most powerful man in the world, and he sees that in his heart. He says, look at all what I have accomplished, what I have done. And immediately he went out of his mind and he walked around on all fours and the dew of the, of the, the ground was on him for that, uh, that time, that season. And then he, he restored, his mind is restored to him. And the last thing that scripture says about him is his words in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. He confesses that there is no God like the God of heaven. There are some who have even suggested that maybe Nebuchadnezzar, for all that he had done in the, earlier in his life, that maybe when he left this life, he was a true worshiper of God. That's the power. But it's this God who is going to set up the kingdom that we read about in this verse. The God that he became convinced of is the God that's going to establish that kingdom. It's the kingdom that God had planned from eternity. It's very interesting when we go to trace through and, and see God's plan. What was God's plan as far as His reign from the beginning? What did God want with regard to reign and rule and rulership? Who did God want them to recognize as king? From the, from the beginning, He wanted them to follow what it was that He said. But man began to rebel against Him as early as the Garden of Eden in, in Genesis chapter 3. And things got to the point, Genesis 6 through 8, that God was sorry that he made man. And so he decided that he was going to destroy them all. And that's exactly what he did. And on the other side of that, we see God working in the lives of individuals who would look to him as their leader. If you think about God and his communicating to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and through all of that saying, look, just follow my plan. I'm going to help you. I'm going to lead you where it is that you need and you want to go. But after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you think about his promise that there's going to be a great nation. He wants to be the head of that nation. He's going to give them a people. He's going to give them a place. And he's going to give them a law to lead them. And so God eventually brings along Moses. And Moses is the one who is giving them that law so that God could rule them. He could be the one over them. And after Moses comes Joshua. They go in and they take the land. God's fulfilled that nation promise by giving them a people that has grown, that has a law, and that has a territory. And then there's the judges. And the judges are not meant to be on the job all the time. They're meant to deliver the people when they've got, gotten into a low place spiritually. And then God wants to be in charge again. But do you remember what happens in Samuel's day? Samuel's the last judge. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, what is it that the people say to Samuel? 
We want a king to be like the nations around us. How did Samuel take that? Well, he thought it was against him. He took that as a personal affront, but God said to him, They have not rejected you, they have rejected me as being king over them. 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7. And so Samuel speaks to the people and he says, It's, the, it's God who delivers you from calamities and from distresses. And it's, yet you have said we want a king over us. And so who's the first king? Who's the king that God gives them on that occasion? Saul. Now, they didn't get to choose who the king was going to be, but they, God gave in to their request and gave them exactly what they wanted. So what's the problem with Saul? He's tall, he's handsome, he begins very humbly. What's the problem? Pride, self-centeredness, disobedience. And so God rejects him, and then God says, I'm going to choose a man who was what? After my own heart. All right. And so it's at this point that, that we have a, an earthly kingdom in Israel, and for 120 years it stays together. 40 years with Saul, 40 years with David, and then 40 years with Solomon. And during Solomon's reign, Solomon, of course, turns away from God, his heart from God, and he follows after uh, idols and, and the false gods of his wives. And as a result of that, the kingdom is going to be split in two. Now, on the, the northern side, the northern kingdom, Israel, there's going to be 19 reigns, 19 kings, five different dynasties. Not one of them is righteous. And in 722 B.C., Assyrians are going to come and they're going to take uh, Israel, those northern tribes, those 10-plus those tribes, going to take them and destroy them all. Now, the southern kingdom is named for its chief tribe, Judah. And Judah is going to have, after David, is going to have 19 kings. There's about six or seven nominally good kings. But that's not really what's important about Judah. There's just one dynasty. They're all David's descendants. All the generations that come straight down from his line. But who ultimately is going to come from David's loins? Jesus, the divine king. In Daniel 2.44 Daniel is talking about, ultimately, the king that's going to reign from David, who is going to be flawless, who's going to be sinless, it's going to be Jesus. In the days of those kings, God's going to set up a kingdom, and the king is Jesus. So the first thing for us to notice is that this is uh, a divine kingdom. But then number two, will you notice with me, it was also planned. In the days of those kings... Now... In Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, In the fullness of time God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those that are under the curse of the law, that we might be a, a ransom made free to God. And in Mark 1 and verse 15, Jesus comes and He says that, that the time of the kingdom of heaven is, is come, repent and believe in the gospel. What Daniel says in Daniel 2.44 is something that begins to spring to life in the gospels and in the book of Acts. God had it planned from out in eternity. But it was something that was going to happen in the fullness of time. So Jesus comes along at the very beginning of his ministry and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. On another occasion, in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, there are some of you standing here who will not taste death till you see the kingdom of God come with power. 
Matthew in Matthew 16, in his version of that, says that, that this church is going to come and that church is the kingdom. And, and during the, it's going to happen in your lifetime. It's going to happen soon. And Mark says it's going to come with power. And in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are ready to see Jesus ascend to heaven and they have a conversation with him where they want to know, hey, is it time now for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, that's not something you need to worry about. You just go to Jerusalem where you're going to be endowed with power from on high. They watch Jesus go to heaven. They go to Jerusalem and they wait. And in Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, the Holy Spirit comes on them and they go out and they speak. And everybody hears them in their own language. That's what Daniel's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about in Mark 1 and Mark 9. And that's what they've been anticipating as we see in, in Acts chapter 1. But then number three, this kingdom is said to be indestructible. It will never be destroyed. It's a promise that's made in Daniel. It's the one that's fulfilled in Christ. And it's important for us to analyze that. When we think about what's being said here, this kingdom is the church. Matthew, that's spoken of in Daniel 2.44, according to Matthew 16, 18, and 19. It's what was foreseen. It was what was established. It's going to never be destroyed. So what does that indicate to us? Does that mean that the New Testament church has always been existence from the first century to now? Do we have record of it? I, I have an, a web address. I, there's been se- it, was, it compiles several sources. This is pretty cool to me. Uh, I have heard bits and pieces here and there, but I had not seen some of the, the evidence of this. Um, keep in mind that in the New Testament, even as it's being written, they're speaking to the folks who are present there and are saying to them that there's going to come a time when folks are going to fall away. In Acts 20, 29, Paul says to the elders at Ephesus, there are going to be those of you who draw men away from your, uh, from your, toward yourselves. They're going to be drawn away from the truth. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 3, they're going to command things that the Bible doesn't say. There's going to be a, a, a time of departure, 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, difficult days are going to come. People are going to turn away from the truth of the gospel. Much of the New Testament is written to warn against departures that were going to take place. And guess what history tells us? It took place. It took place pretty early on, especially where one man is among an eldership kind of elevated himself and was uh, the chief or the head uh, bishop over that particular congregation and then over a, a series of congregations. It wasn't that way in the New Testament, but it developed later. And then there were some teachings that began to be taught that you can't find in the New Testament that began to be part of the teaching of that church. And at some point, that church departed from New Testament Christianity. Now, this was foreseen in Scripture. The question is, as this, these departures were taking place, were there faithful saints that continued to try, try to follow New Testament Christianity, adding nothing to it, no other rule of faith or practice than the Bible? Well, this may interest you. Just, this is just a sampling. This is, there's many of them. In Bulgaria and France in the 6th century, there were Christians who were nicknamed the Paulicans, by their enemies, because they insisted on people reading the Bible for themselves and to follow it as their only authority. Now, I don't expect you to have this, all this fixed into geography, but Bulgaria in the Balkan region, and France, it's in the general area of Europe. And then in the 7th century in Britain, we kind of have a better idea where that is, 1,200 members of the church in Bangor, Wales, 
were massacred by Augustinian followers because they were teaching that adults needed to be baptized for the remission of their sins. And then the Slavic people in the 9th century, that's back in the Baltic region, away from England, they translated the Bible into their own language and they still met the way the Christians did in the 1st century. And many people chose to organize and worship in that way as the result of this movement. In the 10th century, there was a number of sects that were called the Waldenses. They were autonomous. That is, they didn't have that superstructure where they had a central man who was sitting on an earthly position saying that he had authority with Christ. They also used the New Testament as their only rule and practice. Now, this is in addition to a lot of earlier examples. When you get earlier, closer to the first century, there's this tug of war. And so the church has existed. There are some Iranians earlier in the 20th century that said that they're in the northern province. There have been those practicing New Testament Christianity, calling themselves only Christians, all the way back to the first century. It's pretty impressive. Let me ask you a question. What if, after the folks departed from the New Testament pattern, the New Testament Christianity, what if the church disappeared for 20 centuries? Would that invalidate what Daniel said in Daniel 2.44? If there was ever a period of time where the church ceased to exist in reality, would that make God's prophecy not true? What do you think? Let's say the church disappears tomorrow and the world doesn't end. Does that make the Bible untrue? How, how, unless the Bible's destroyed. Because if you have the Bible, what do you have? It's the blueprint, right? In fact, I like it. uh, There's a better way to say that. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 1, Luke tells us that Jesus began proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And to do that, he, he tells this parable. It's the parable of the soils. And he goes through and he tells that parable. And then he pulls his disciples aside and he begins to explain it to them. In Luke chapter 8 and verse 11, he says, The seed is the word of God. I don't know, how many of you have ever read Leroy uh, Brownlow's book about why I'm a member? You ever, okay. So let me tell you where I, 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 I had the old paperback, the blue book, if you ever saw that one. Um, I, I grew up going to a real small church in a place called Franklin, Georgia. I don't expect you to know where it is. Church was probably 20 people. And so a church in Tennessee donated a school bus to us. And that's where the teen class met, on one of those big yellow school buses. So me and Mac Jordan, that was the teen class. We went in there, and I was really skirting it. I was 11 or 12, and he was 13. And we went in there, my dad taught me why I'm a member of the church. And in that book, there's several different things, that, and a lot of it has stuck with me. I can't. It's amazing. There's no neat illustrations to pull you along. It was just good, basic Bible information. He gave this illustration about seeds. And you've probably heard this one. I don't know if somebody before Leroy Brownlow used it, but I know that Brownlow used it. He said, the principle was this. If you plant watermelon seeds, you don't expect corn to grow or squash to grow. If you plant watermelon seeds, you expect you're going to get watermelon. If you plant New Testament Christianity, or the principles, the foundation of that, what do you expect that you're going to get? Only Christians, nothing else. So if somehow every Christian on this earth for a time were to be taken away, as long as we've got the the seed, we can reproduce the New Testament church. I only say that to say, 
I believe we can see evidence that the church... See, they're invisible to history. How much, how much press is the Lord's church getting in the general world today? Now, we have the information age. We have the Internet to, to preserve it all for us. But 50 years ago, we didn't have that. So how do we know? Who's, who's giving the history? The people who have the power, the money, and who are in control. So I believe that through the ages, there have been New Testament Christians who are taking the Word of God and they're showing... Daniel 2.44 to be true. Number four, it's everlasting. It shall stand forever. Self-explanatory. Number five, it is powerful. It will crush and it will bring to an end all these kingdoms. How will it do that? Not militarily, not economically, not through crusades, not through conquistadors, but it will conquer and it will melt the hearts. Of individuals. Kathy and I went to the Notre Dame Cathedral in, in Paris, France in 2006. It, that is an impressive building. It was built in the 1100s. It had survived all kind of different wars, including World War I and World War II. But it had begun to be dilapidated in time. Anybody remember what happened in April 2019? There was a fire in the the bell tower, I suppose, and it, and it burned that up and it burned up one of the towers. And the damage out of that was so bad that they pretty much, there's been a fight. Now I believe that there's been so many people who just want to restore that, that they're going to try to reconstruct it. But let's say it continues. It's going to be destroyed at the end of time. Second Peter 3 and verse 10. When you think about things like blueprints, St. Gaul's Monastery is the earliest blueprints that we know about. It goes to the ninth century. They, it was the first drawings. And so far as we know, they never built the thing, but they, at least they, they started doing blueprints. But think about how much occurred in history before the ninth century. And if they had built it, and if it had stayed to the end of time, it would have been destroyed in the end. Jesus is a king that will reign forever. That's the point. And isn't it interesting that this is a point that's being made 500 years before Christ is born. And all that it shows, it also shows that God was not caught off guard when he sent his son to this earth and he was sent to a cross and he died. It was all part of God's everlasting plan. He's the king we serve. A God who has that kind of power and that kind of glory and that kind of majesty. You've been forbearing. I feel like I preached more than I taught class, but I appreciate your attention. Um, I'm done. We'll see you tomorrow night.